This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. David Knopf, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I just can't wait. I think this is going to be a great chat. I'm super excited. It's everything that I'm not. So I want to talk to you about that. David is an Australian Antarctic expedition leader, author, and speaker. He has served in the Australian Army in the Solomon Islands and has worked for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Pakistan and Iraq. He was a station leader of the Davis Research Station in Antarctica when COVID hit leaving his team stranded. 537 days of winter is how many days he spent there, and it's his first book, and it's his account of this extremely challenging journey. Now, okay, I'm going to tell you right here, right now, David, I wouldn't have survived. I I think I would have curled up in a heap and died. Tell me how you got there and what happened. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure you would have been able to find the strength, and that was one of the things. We we signed up for for one year, the wintering team of 24 were, you know, a few of them had been to Antarctica before and, and a couple had done winters, but we didn't really know each other. And most the way the Australian stations work is you, you sign up as a contractor for one year. To do what? To, so I was a station leader. There's there's cooks, mechanics, electricians, plumbers, meteorologists, um, the, the core group to kind of keep the lights on and keep the place running and a couple of scientists. How do you get a job as a station? I mean, what is the application process and who pays you, who runs it? So the Australian stations are run by the Australian Antarctic Division, which is a division of the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment, so a federal government department, uh, publicly funded, staffed by contractors. Some full-time members of the Australian Antarctic program go down uh, each, each summer and winter, but more or less it's contractors or PhD students and scientists that are, are down there to conduct their research in the summertime or potentially a wintering project as well. Most of the, the science gets done in the summer um, and then the, the Antarctic program and Antarctic division support the stations to enable you know, Australia's best scientists and, and international scientists and everyone to use those stations to conduct their research. and So your job as a station leader is to make sure everything runs smoothly for the people that are working there. Correct. You're like the boss. Yeah. Correct. And similar to a general manager of, of operations uh, at, a, at a, you know, and, and almost a mayor of a small town is another way to look at it, that on the social side of things in the community aspects, you have to keep an eye on what's happening there and drive that community involvement with, with functions and events and things like Anzac Days and midwinter celebrations. The station leader has to organise that but let the people make their own fun as well and not get too involved. And how many people are we talking about? We had 24 for the winter. Uh, in the summer, the original summer of 2019-20, before COVID hit, we had 
around, averaged around 80 to 90 on station, oh, wow. okay. which is, you know, half 50% of that scientists in the summertime. As COVID unfolded, that started to, to scale back. They slowed down the amount of people coming southbound for the, the end of summer. And by the time the ship came back in March for its final visit, which was the, the Aurora Australis icebreaker, if anyone knows it, that was coming back for its final visit to Antarctica to pick up the summering team and, and head north. And the plan was that the new icebreaker RSV Noina, which was being built in Romania at the time, would have been finished and ready to come and collect us in November. Now, within a few months of uh, the Aurora picking up the summer and leaving us there, it became pretty clear that with COVID and that, that Noina wouldn't be ready. So the 25 people that stayed, including yourself, mm. were you guys the diehards, the guys that keep it running? Is that? <laughs> yeah, no, correct, the diehards. But most of it, for most of us, it was our first winter. So a good number had been to Antarctica before and we'd all, you know, worked there for that first summer. So we had a taste of it and everyone had a chance to say, oh, I don't want to stay for the winter, I want to go home, and, and that would have been fine. But we'd signed up for a year. There was no real reason to suspect at that point that COVID was going to have the impact on the world that it did. Who so we, knew? Who yeah, knew? exactly. So we knew it would change the world. And, and early on, it was certainly, you know, the best place to be, to, to be mm. stuck on your Antarctic station. We've got enough food and fuel and toilet paper and everything for you know, a couple of years if oh, everything right. went really wrong. So it was a novelty at first. It wasn't until the, the deep, dark months of winter that hit. Uh, so you weren't fighting for toilet paper at the supermarket or anything? No, we had we had a container. <laughs> we, were, we were fine. You, you could have started selling it. Okay, so when COVID hit, I mean, none of us knew, right? I mean, I was thinking, okay, well, it's SARS and it's going to be six to eight weeks and, you know, we're all going to be fine. So who knew? Um, I also think that if the global political climate hadn't been what it was, I think it might have been a SARS. But because we had poor global leadership, but anyway, that's another podcast. So you guys have bunkered in, you're there, uh, the 25 of you. At what point did you realise, oh, okay, that's it, I can't leave till when? Tell me about that. So that was in June. Um, so just after midwinter. Oh, wow. It's only two months in. Yeah, a few months in. So 23rd of June, um, my boss rang me up. Uh, we had a video meeting, which we, we did every week anyway, and said, hey, Noeen is not going to be finished by a long shot. Um, and the plan was to get us out with flights. They, they We have aviation access in the summertime uh, ordinarily, but they said, look, that's just not going to happen this summer. There's too many risks around sending people southbound and then even getting access to the aircraft that we used, which was stationed in North America. We weren't able to even get them down through South America and across the continent to East Antarctica. So the, the easiest thing was to leave us there. And that hit like a freight train. It didn't sink in for a, another month or two. And then that's when morale and and everything just, just plummeted and hit an all-time low because we had... At that point, we, we were going home in March or April the next year, which was still six months away. And were there people there with families and children? And Yeah, a- absolutely. So all of those realities of, of what, you know, you got 24 Australians and a few Kiwis for good measure, very good mixture of, of younger, older, some with kids, some with older kids, some with younger kids, you know, some divorced, some in relationships, some with new relationships that are, might have survived 12 months. They're not going to survive 537 days of, of, mm-hmm. of kind of separation, for instance. And, and, and that happened and that was, you know, people had family and friends affected by COVID, affected by other illnesses mm-hmm. and, and those realities. And those moments are tough and you feel very isolated. But um, strangely, though, it didn't 
if you were zooming into a funeral from Antarctica or zooming into a funeral from Queensland, it was sort of the same. And in, in those strange ways, we were getting the same experience as everyone back home, but uh, it was, yeah. Oh, I can imagine. So you're the station leader and you're hit with this news. So you get the news first, right? Yep. And how does that work? I mean, you know, in terms of leadership, how do you, firstly, you have to deal with your own shock and grief because you would have had family back home as well. So then, and then how do you uh, communicate that to the team? And then, you know, I mean, the questions are, how do you keep them working? Yeah. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it was a tough one. But and myself and my boss and the, the, the leadership of the Antarctic program, we talked about the best way to do it. At the end of the day, there kind of wasn't an easy way. So I ended up breaking the news to the team just so that it, they heard it first on station. With The worst case scenario was someone heard it mm. back channel through an email that said, oh, here you all got extended, mm. and then they're in my office going, oh, how did you not tell us? So we told them mm. straight away. It took a little bit longer to get the official correspondence or the official um, meetings with senior leadership. So that meant that I got, I took a, the brunt of questions and blame for a decision I didn't make, which was fine and, and sort of came with the role a lot of the time as station leader, but it hurt because I was in the same boat. I didn't want to be there that long uh, and leading a team of people that should have gone home, changed the leadership role and finding the motivation within the team for out of the 24 Pretty much everyone rose to the occasion and did an amazing job. But we all had our ups and downs along the way. So no one was perfect. And I was the, the, you know, as normal and human as the next person with good days and bad days. But some of them, you know, did, did a lot better than others. And I found that was those that had gone down there with a motivation of this kind of true Antarctic experience and making the most of what was down there if they, for their one trip of a lifetime down to Antarctica. Whereas Others that potentially had just taken it as, oh, this is an interesting job for a year. I'll be, you know, back in a year, standard fly-in, fly-out sort of contract. They tended to not deal with the extension mm-hmm. and the realities of what living with an isolated community for that long would entail. Mm-hmm. So in winter, talk to me what a normal day looks like. What, what is it a bunker? Is it, describe how that looks. Yeah, I mean, if it was dark 23 hours a day in the middle of winter, you get a, a, a yeah, dwim. Wow a dim twilight at, at midday. So you're kind of shuffling around in the dark the whole time. The accommodation is pretty good on the Australian stations. You've got your own room. It's a small-ish room, similar to a, a bunk bed, but it's your own room. Um, and then I you know, shuffle down for breakfast at 7 o'clock, look out at the darkness, eat your toast. We had a wintering chef who was absolutely great. So they often be porridge or something, do that. Walk across to my desk, you rug up. I had to walk you know, a, a whole of a 50-metre commute to my office, but you'd rug up in all your layers of goose down and beanies and gloves and boots to walk that 50 metres when it's, you know, minus 20 degrees outside. So you're walking out, so your bunks yeah. are separate to the office. Yeah, correct. So the, the buildings yeah. are all decentralised so that if any building had a drama or, or, or burnt down or uh, of course. We, could, we could relocate. Um, to say everything had double redundancy. You've got two power stations, multiple accommodation buildings. A lot of the food and supplies would be kind of, Disjointed. Now, the downside of that is half of the trades would spend a good percentage of their day looking for stuff. And they're like, well, the records say that this particular gasket or something is somewhere on station, but um, God knows which container it's in or which shed. So, which is good if everything burns down. You go, well, there's, there's probably a gasket there and a gasket here, but uh, trying to find it sometimes is pretty tough. Mm. What was the outdoor temperature? 
Yeah, the coldest we got outdoors was in the minus 30s, It's but it's the wind chill that gets you. So when you've got sort of 100-knot winds on, on the, the worst days, that takes the wind chill down to sort of minus 60, minus 70, which you, we really we, we didn't go outside if, unless it's absolutely critical in those conditions and you've got to cover every single piece of skin or you'll get frostbite almost immediately. And thankfully we didn't really have any major cold injuries throughout the year other than just general um, cold extremities when you're standing outside or working uh, mm-hmm. in those environments. And so you would then walk to your office and what kind of work would you be doing? What What's going on with the 25 people in winter? Yeah, a lot of the, the so the half the group was trades. So that's just keeping the lights on, running the powerhouses, checking all the fire systems, making sure all the pumps and refrigerations and the heating systems are all working correctly. And they're very high maintenance um, because of the extreme temperatures. Mm. Everything takes a beating down. So the trades worked hard on that. The meteorological team kept doing all their observations and all their work during the winter time. Um, there was a smaller winter science program, and that would feature checking some of the remote field stations. So there's a lot of remote work down there now. That, and it could be as simple as driving out. So we'd jump on the, the quad bikes or in the Haglands over snow vehicles, or sometimes you just walk out to a remote weather station or a, a scientific instrument swap the memory cards, download the data. So same as you would back here, you're pulling out a laptop and plugging it into an instrument that uploads some data and we take that back to Australia, uh, to the station and send it back to Australia. But in, in Australia, that might take half an hour. In Antarctica, that would take three or four hours of just getting all the gear together, getting out there, warming up the, the laptop and the instruments so that when you take them out, they actually work and then your batteries last for seconds uh, or minutes at best sometimes. And, and, you know, we went and did some some underwater, under the so under the frozen ocean, we had to do some underwater benthic ecology once, just drilling holes in the ice and putting GoPros into the water. It was so cold that to do a one-minute GoPro video, you'd have to swap the battery straight away. So we were out there just waiting for batteries to charge to put them back in to take a one-minute underwater video, pull it out, change the battery. So, you could have done that in 20 minutes in Australia. It took hours standing out there to trying to charge batteries and keep things going. So what does the landscape look like? I mean, of course, it's all snow, but are there? do you see polar bears? I mean, are, are no. there? Is there any life, wildlife out there? It's it's like a David Attenborough documentary. So there's no polar bears in the south. They're only up there's in the north. north. But right. um, plenty of uh, Adelie penguins are very common around Davis. We get occasional emperor penguins. Weddell seals and elephant seals, very common. Um, once we're out on the ocean in the, in the ships on the way there and back, there's whales everywhere, uh, oh, which wow. is just phenomenal to see them in the wild and yeah. see them in their, their natural habitat is, is incredible. And then seeing them, um, you know, it, seeing nature at its finest as well as whales mm-hmm. and seals start trying to eat penguins and, and the birds swoop in for the, you know, some of the birds, like the the yeah, you know, water albatrosses, everything. These are mm-hmm. massive, massive sort of dinosaur-sized birds, which is uh, incredible to see in full flight. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So what are the threats to to humans there? Are there any external threats other than I guess poor weather conditions? That's the main one. Uh, if you it's if you tripped over and broke your ankle in Antarctica yeah. and you couldn't walk, if you didn't have the right gear and equipment, and, and the most important thing you had was a radio to, to call for help um, and a GPS to tell them where to come, you could be dead in, you know, in not very long if you were exposed. Mm. Now, if you've got the right gear and equipment, you'll be fine. And we used to mm. always carry a survival pack with us that would have, you know, 10 or so kilos of gear that you could wrap yourself up in and, and get warm enough to survive you wouldn't be comfortable but you survive and and that was critical because if you didn't have that and you fell over and hit your head on a rock or and went unconscious you could freeze uh freeze to death pretty quickly Mm. okay so back to inside so there's 24 and you so talk to me about I guess the social aspect of it so you've got people doing their jobs you've got the contractors you've got the scientists I mean I I don't know there would have been, I guess, uh, knowing that you're there for a while, there would have been, um, I guess, implications about mental health, about people getting on, about people arguing, about. So what did you have to draw on to lead those people or to to deal with those situations? Yeah, it, it, the main thing is get the right people at the start and you, you tend to avoid a lot of those problems. But if you take 24 of your best friends and put them in an Antarctic station for a year, you'd still have drama. So we were certainly Oh, you would. <laughs> Making our own fun became really important. So as the station leader, I'd often have organised fun and then just let the community make its own fun. And I would make sure the balance was generally about right. Uh, And that meant a lot of dress-up parties, band nights, homebrew. Homebrew was always a a good occasion midweek. I was going to ask about alcohol. Yeah, they've they've since changed the policy a little bit. So we, we used to have homebrew on the station. They did historically for a number of years. That's now been removed and it's a bit different now, but that was a good community activity more than, you know, the quality was, was, was surprisingly good, but yeah, it wasn't, wasn't as good as tap beer back here. So we probably just enjoyed making it more than drinking it sometimes. And often the difference though, between your work persona and your social persona could be quite different. And that was important to break it up a bit that certainly some of the nights where we had, we had a birthday party that we was a Viking theme night. So everyone's dressed up as Vikings and, you kind of not yourself at a night like that. You're there just playing a character of being a Viking or and you're all making jokes and having conversation in funny Viking accents. And we did, we had like tropical themed birthday party once as well. And you're all kind of just in the tropical theme vibe. And that would help break it up a bit to give you a mental break. Getting out in the field was the best one I found for my own mental health and a number of people had the same uh, solution. That if you, you've got cabin fever get out. There's a, a, a bunch of field huts. We had a 400 square kilometre area we could get out and about and enjoy. So you could go out to a field hut with a couple of friends uh, on a work trip or a recreation trip and just break the monotony, get out, see some penguins, look at some icebergs, be off station. And, and then you come home and feel like you've been away for a week. Uh, and that mm. might be enough. To, to well, I was going to, that was something else I was going to ask you. Do you get a day off? Mm. Yes and no. You, you do. We'd have, we'd work sort of six and a half days, yeah, six days a week. 
you'll still get work questions on your day off, but you can sit around and you can you can plan accordingly to be off station and and you can dictate where you're. If I, I knew if I hung out in the main area on a Sunday, I'm asking to get work questions. Like it's mm. just got to happen, and I didn't really care as long as they were pretty straightforward of like, oh, I can just point you in the right direction or, or set up a meeting later in the week. Where it got old is if you're trying to sit there and watch, watch a movie or, or watch the footy or something um, and someone's asking you about, well, why can't I go and do this particular thing or why haven't I been approved to do this? And I'm like, I'm trying, like it's Sunday. Like, I'm, I'm not mm. going to talk about that in front of other people, first of all, and then on a Sunday afternoon. So mm. park it. But you also had to go, well, if that's going to help them get it off their chest and clear their mind, maybe that's better for the, the group and yeah, manage Geez, as a leader for, for that long, the hardest one was trying to balance my own mental health versus the mental health of others around me who were struggling and perhaps not acknowledging they were struggling and you're trying to help them and point them in the right direction, but they're not really interested mm. In that, mm. and you go okay, and that mm. that gets pretty old. Whereas, you also want to focus on okay, who's doing well, who's making the most of this, and, and who? How do we reward the expeditioners and, and scientists and other and trades and that that are doing a great job, as opposed to focusing on you know ones that are determined to to not have a good time. Mm. So, was it all the same people for the length of time for the five hundred and thirty-seven days? The, the same 24 odd of us so it dropped yeah. down. We did do a, a medical evacuation at one point and dropped it down oh. to 22 for the end. But, right. uh, yeah, we'd all set, sou- set sail south uh, in October 2019 with all of the summers as well, so then whittled down to that, that smaller winter team. And when did you come back and tell me how that happened? So we were picked up on a charter vessel, the MPV Everest, which is an ice-strengthened uh, multipurpose vessel. Picked us up and then... When? In March 2021 mm-hmm. from Davis, we sailed across to Mawson Station to do the resupply there and then sailed north back to Hobart in early April 2021. A few days into sailing, uh, we had a, a pretty catastrophic engine fire that took the one of the engines offline completely. We had six hours of the ship just sitting there dead in the water in five to six metre waves rocking pretty horrendously from side to side while we Oof. contemplated. You're having, making me queasy already, yeah. We yeah. Contemplating yeah. having to get into the lifeboats. and But surprisingly calm, everyone just, we stood there, we waited for instructions. The crew fought, the, the crew and a number of the AAD team did a great job fighting the fire and, and getting the ship going again. Uh, and we limped back to Fremantle on one engine at about three-quarter speed. Uh, I think it was the 13th of April, 13th or 15th of April, um, 2021. How did that feel? Felt amazing. And, and at the time, West Australia had been pretty much unaffected by COVID, so it felt very normal. Uh, it wasn't until I got back to Melbourne and then Hobart that I sort of got to see what COVID lockdown was. <laughs> but, uh, it felt surreal. We, we'd been away that long and missed out on so many just generational changes in the, the way people went to the supermarket and interacted. And I, I remember just instinctively going to shake hands all the time and getting knocked back and just getting blanked on the, on the handshakes from people as they went for fist bumps. And it took, they'd have all had a year and a half or a year to, to get used to that. And I was a year out of date. So that was kind of odd. Anyway, you adjust pretty quick, but it was almost like time travel. 
Did you then have to experience several lockdowns being in Victoria? I did. I got to. Um, <laughs> I, I went up. Did you South- wish you were back at work? <laughs> well, so to, to segue on to how I ended up writing a book, that was that was it. I I went up to New South Wales for a bit as the lockdown just before lockdown broke broke out. Came back to Melbourne, had to do fourteen days isolation. It didn't really matter anyway because the whole state got locked down again. And that was when I was sitting in my house bored, and I'm like, that's it. Cool. And I had publishers and and that were you know interested to see if I was going to do it, and, I, and just found the right publisher in, in a firm press. Wonderful. And we love them. Yeah, they're lovely. And and thanks to, to mm-hmm. Kieran and, and Martin there who took a chance on me, and and here we are today with a, with a published book. And and if it hadn't been for that lockdown, I probably wouldn't have got it done in the compressed time frame. So mm-hmm. thanks to. Are you still friends with all your colleagues? Not I mean, what? Ha- no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Were there some of them you just thought, oh, well, I never want to see you again, and others that you've missed, maybe? Look, we all had a shared experience. So I would, yeah. I would happily sit down and talk to any of them um, any day of the week. I'd have time for all of them. Now, a lot of them don't have time for me, and that's fine. And I've, I've made my peace with that over the I, – look, I didn't get it right the whole time, but we all got home safely in the end. And, well, and there think, wasn't a book you could read. There wasn't anything you could yeah. look up. I mean, yeah. what an extraordinary situation. You had to make right. it up but as you go. That's right. And, and, look, really, I was really, really happy that a number of the team helped with checking facts in the book. So I sent it out before we published it. I sent it out to, to certainly my, my deputy station leader, and the doctor and a few key others that had very key roles in the whole the whole experience. And just to check, to say, like, hey, this is how I remember the events happening. These were the main issues. This is what I reckon and and, and these are my thoughts on it and this is the book. And I was really happy. They came back and said, look, that, that captures the essence and the vibe and the, the story and it's the way to tell it. So there's a few things that we've left out because – they're just not. That's that. That was our experience, and it's it's not necessary. It's to private to the group. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that shared bonding experience. But mm. everything that's in the book is 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 what happened, and, and certainly the darkest moments in the, the depths of winter as well are in there, of where we were just pushed to our mental limits. And it was important to get those in there in a way that that doesn't um, doesn't kind of expose too many individuals to, to sort of what, what happened, but uh, otherwise it, it tells the essence of what happened. Well, and also too, you've got to be really sensitive when telling your story, and I was only uh, listening to a biographer talking about this the other day. When you're telling your story, you're actually telling others' stories as well right. because you're not a single entity, uh, mm-hmm. and particularly in that situation. David, talk to me about what gave you, I mean, you've been a soldier, is that right? Well, an, an officer, a soldier, same thing, yeah. An officer, right. So what made you apply for that job? What was appealing to you about it to start with? Yeah, so, so I've been an army officer for a couple of years and then I worked with foreign affairs and trade as a diplomat in, in predominantly conflict zones or less than I non-Parisian or New York-style postings. And I love that work. I love the, the large-scale operational aspect of, of being in a war zone and you've got, you've got helicopters, you've got... You know, everything's happening. And you're at the forefront of foreign policy. You, you know, you, I, I never wanted to just sit back at a university and do PhD after PhD on international relations without actually getting into it. So I loved being part of it. But it was exhausting uh, flying in and flying out of war zones all the time and, and dealing with some pretty 
you know, pretty much the worst parts of humanity and, and it's, it takes a toll on you physically. It's, it, I was never really on the front lines of the, the wars in a dangerous way, but uh, certainly there was you know, diplomats that were definitely injured in name of service to their country. So it's not totally safe. And I'd had a, about enough of that. And that's where the Antarctic program appealed to me. Of I'd been to Antarctica before on a private expedition to the peninsula, loved it, absolutely loved the wildlife and the scenery and found that the Antarctic program was a good mixture of the operational aspects I loved from diplomacy and, and international relations, yet in the safer and more uh, friendly environment of, of you know, Antarctica with science and penguins and, and everything. Um, and so what led you to be an officer? How, what was the career path to that? Well, I mean, when I started university, I was studying uh, engineering and one year into that, I'm like, this is so boring. Like, I mean, <laughs> it had good job prospects and nothing against engineers, but I'm like, if this is, you know, you finish school and all I want yes. to be is an engineer and you finish school and you go, well, what? so engineering, I sit at a desk and use computer-aided design and learn JavaScript and, you know, maybe one day I get to build a race car, which was my dream was to kind of get into that. And I'm like, well, actually, I think on personality, I'd rather be the race car driver than the engineer and I kind of I joined the army reserve and then straight away I'm like oh this is going to be way more fun than engineering and and you know and we, I did did full-time service after that went to the Solomon Islands as a platoon commander and loved that and and got back from there and realized that okay being a, a full career in uniform wasn't quite for me but at that point we we did a lot of work with the Australian High Commission in Honiara and as part of regional assistance mission Solomon Islands it was a joint AFP, ADF, DFAT task group. And that was when I'm like, cool, I've got to go back to uni. I finished off an arts degree in politics history and then went to uh, Foreign Affairs and Trade from there. Yeah, wow. And what's next for David? Now, right now, and I'm, I'm really enjoying this, is going out and, and sharing my story and the experiences and the lessons with corporate groups, school groups, you name it. Uh, if you've got an organisation that is struggling, well, you with, couldn't do an experiment like that, could you? Even you if you tried, no. Yeah, and you yeah. are the experiment, yeah. Exactly. So, and I love telling the story. I think it helps me in a lot of ways to, to mm. tell it at times. And people often say, "Oh, I won't ask you curly questions." I'm like, "Ask them. Ask me the the curliest question you've got, and uh, if I can answer it, I will. And if I can't, I'll tell you why I can't answer it." And I love doing that and we'll see where that leads. Um, really, so the book comes out the day we're recording this and uh, it's super exciting. I can't wait to go and see it in a bookstore this afternoon and see where it takes me. Congratulations, David. The book is called 537 Days of Winter. David Knopf, thank you so much. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow 
and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.